Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Thank you, God, for just this week, for the beautiful sunshine, um, the green grass, the life that we see around us, the rebirth that it reminds us. It is a, uh, re- <clears throat> a reminder to us of, of our own lives, that though we were dead in our sin and trespasses, you have come in and breathed life into us again and give us the hope of the resurrection, the hope of uh, even resurrecting our flesh so that they might become obedient to the truth. God, we are thankful for your grace as it has been revealed to us in the gospel and the righteousness that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Teach us this morning. Uh, Open our hearts to you and to him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, a large part of the book of Romans, as Paul has taught, it has been very... Um, rifled, specific, um, a great deal of detail, but methodical, uh, organized, all of those things, right? And then you get to, all of a sudden, you get to chapters, uh, the latter part of chapter 12 and 13, and it's almost like Paul pulls out a shotgun, puts the rifle away, pulls out the shotgun, and just starts blasting away. You know, just starts saying a bunch of things and throws them at the wall, hoping that something will stick. And I think at times, uh, that's how we look at these kinds of passages of Scripture. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, in the hopes that, you know, we'll catch one thing out of that and do that, right? You know, it's like the preacher on Sunday. He's, you know, if I can throw out 20 things that everybody ought to do this week, hopefully they'll do one of them. Uh, so, sometimes I think we look at that, and I, I want to try and break this down a little bit so that perhaps we don't leave with that mentality, that we understand that Paul is still being incredibly organized in his thoughts, even though it's, it is different, because this is practical application. That it, this, this necessarily isn't theological training, but it's equally important. <clears throat> the other thing that I want to do, <clears throat> because I think this is important whenever you come to application, is to give you time to wrestle with and... Uh, begin to say, okay, this is what I think this means in my life, or these are the circumstances that I'm working with and dealing with, and so this is how I think this needs to be applied in my life. So I want to I be able to give you the, the outline, the general direction, but also have some time for you to wrestle with um, this in your own life. So as we have gone through the book of Romans... In the first uh, 12 chapters, really, we have seen the gospel uh, unfolded to us in a way that depicts this righteousness that God makes available to us through Jesus Christ. We have seen how God has unfolded exactly through Paul what what the gospel is, how the gospel applies to our life, and how it's going to change Uh, our past, our present, and our future, right? Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, 
And I think there, there are two other uh, key components that we have talked about, but we haven't really honed in, and in on or zeroed in on. One is what it means to live by faith. Remember, this, this book begins with Paul saying that the righteous will live by faith. That is kind of the summary of what Paul is saying in the entirety of the book of Romans is that as those who have been offered the the righteous gift of God, we need to live by faith. So what does that mean? Well, we have uh, defined faith as submission to the truth. When we come across biblical truths, when we come across truths that God shares in, in Scripture, in life, these truths must be submitted to. And then we live our lives as though those are true. The fundamental truth that the book of Romans bears out is what? What is the fundamental truth? Think back all the way Everybody to like our... Sin. Okay, everybody is sinful, in need of grace, who created all things, God did, who has the right to reign in over all things, God does. That fundamental truth weaves its way throughout the entirety of scripture that God is the creator And as such, He is the self-sufficient One, and so therefore He has the right to rule and to reign over everything. And so sin then is best defined as the suppression of that truth. At any moment where we seek to usurp the authority of God or the rightful place of God, that is sin. Now there are specific actions that sort of bear out that, that attitude, But it is the attitude, the thought process, that is the broken Walmart cart, isn't it? And so sin could be sort of defined as whenever I want to decide how I'm going to live my life and not be subject to what God has determined. So faith is submission to the truth. Sin is suppression of the truth Specifically, this this uh, <clears throat> fundamental truth in the book of Romans, and then we come to kind of a working definition of the gospel. Uh, and I wrote a couple notes up here on the board. I'm going to give it to you. But uh, first of all, let me uh, let me put the challenge before you. What is the gospel? I'm sorry. Okay, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, of course. Any other thoughts? We know gospel means good news, but what is it good news about? Okay, how we can have restoration, reconciliation with God. Okay. Everything that uh, comes from uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's, here's what I came up with. And I did, I'll be honest with you, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, spent a lot of time mulling it over. 
But in the Gospel, especially in the book of Romans, I think we see the demonstration by Jesus of what it means to live a life dependent on the Father. Jesus' demonstration, living a life of dependence on the Father, providing the righteousness of the Father, and finally, the hope that we can be with the Father. His demonstration of what it means to live a dependent life. Why is that important? What does Jesus call us to be? Okay. What, what did Jesus say to his disciples? Follow me. Be like me. Live like me. I can pull that back some. So, in essence, uh, this idea of Jesus giving us this demonstration of what it means to live a dependent life is in reality showing us what his intentions are for us. That's going to be important here in a minute. Uh, Secondly, the fact that Jesus provides the righteousness of the Father. Remember Romans chapter 3, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been revealed. This righteousness is through Jesus Christ, through his atoning sacrifice. So, So the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is right there in that statement. I didn't spell it out that way, but that is in essence. That is how Jesus provided the righteousness of the Father. But it also brings into play what Kathy said. Because there are implications. When he provided that righteousness, his expectation is what? That we live out the reality of that righteousness, right? Okay? And then finally, we have a hope that we can be with the Father. He didn't just leave us here and say, well, good luck. (laughs) I hope you can figure it out. He, He... gives us the hope. He, he tells his disciples constantly, where I'm going, you can go too. Okay? Now, all of that being said, what is it that Jesus, in living this dependent life, wants us to do? How does he want us to live in this world? What does it mean to demonstrate gospeling love? A love that is motivated and emanates from the gospel. Turn to Mark chapter thir- Mark, John chapter 13. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was having um, time with his disciples. And uh, in John chapter 13, we read about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. So that is part of this chapter. Uh, But we're going to look specifically at verses 34 and 35 of John chapter 13, where Jesus, in essence, tells us how we are to live, what our mission is. He says, verse 34, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So Jesus says, what I have for you, what I want you to do is real simple. Just love each other. Let's go back to this just for a minute. Of all these things that are on the board, what's the number one thing that gets in the way of loving other people? Selfishness. Sin, is it? 
me wanting to do things my way, me wanting to get what I think I deserve, me wanting to protect myself, me not wanting to get off the couch and do something for somebody else, right? Sin gets in the way. And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love one another. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. I want you to love one another. In another place in the Gospels, Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Of all the 613 commands, what's the greatest? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, in that, Jesus gives us what I believe is the motivating force behind our behavior in this world. And so, Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter, the latter part of Romans chapter 12, in Romans chapter 13, and he says, okay, I'm going to teach you how to demonstrate gospeling love in the world around you, in the community that you live, and ultimately in the church, Romans chapter 14 and 15. I think what Paul is sharing with us is how we can live out the reality of the commandment of Jesus to love one another. That's what this whole section is about. How do we really show that we are disciples of Jesus? So, let's jump into this section. This isn't going to take long. I simply want to point out a few things to you, and then uh, the rest of the time is going to be spent with us figuring out, okay, how do we do this? Okay? Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul begins, Love must be sincere. Um, The word here is really, love needs to be without hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Those are the people that go to church, right? What's that? Okay, saying one thing, doing another. What is... Okay, acting. Uh, It it was a technical term for a a Greek actor who would put on a mask and pretend to be one character and they would take that off and put on another mask and and be another character. Uh, And so it's this duality, this sort of two-facedness What's the number one charge against Christians today by non-believers? A bunch of hypocrites. And here Paul says, your love for each other must be absent hypocrisy. What is Paul saying? Your love has to come from within. It has to be generated and motivated by something that is beyond you. Why? Because we're sinful. And we're driven by that sinfulness. And so something has to change us. Remember the beginning of Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed. That's what Paul is talking about here. This transformational thing that happens because of the gospel in our lives that produces a love that is unique, that is characteristic. So that is sort of the statement that Paul makes. Love must be sincere. And then what he's going to do is give us a bunch of supporting present participles. These are what we call dependent clauses. So they are simply defining for us what it means 
to have a sincere love. Okay? Love must be sincere. Um, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the summary version, and then we'll read the passage of Scripture. Because uh, sometimes it looks like there's two or three things here, when in reality they're, they're sort of combined into one. So the first one is rejecting evil and embracing goodness. Rejecting evil and embracing goodness. Paul says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. In order to have a sincere love, we have to reject things that are evil, uh, that are uh, abhorrent, and cling to those things that are good. Hopeful, right? Okay? The second thing that Paul says is we should honor others. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Hmm. In order for my love to be sincere, I have to look at other people around me and see their value because they are created in the image of of God, and then say, because they are created in the image of God, I have a duty to relegate myself in submission to them. To honor them above myself. Uh, The third thing that Paul says we should do is persevere. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual uh, fervor. Serving the Lord. The fourth thing Paul says is be joyful, patient, and faithful. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And we should be sharing. Notice that. When Paul says practice hospitality... You know, he's not necessarily saying, invite a bunch of people over to your home. He's simply saying, be willing to share what you have. If you see somebody in need, be willing to give that to them. And one way in which you might do that is through the practicing of hospitality. The next thing that Paul says is we should bless our enemies. Who does that sound like? Jesus said, I have... You have heard it said, love your neighbor. neighbor. I tell you, love your enemy. Jesus, or Paul here says, we should bless our enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Paul says, we should rejoice and we should mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And mourn with those who mourn. In other words, take into consideration the circumstances of other people around you and be compassionate to that. You know, don't be thrown a celebration when somebody over here just lost their family in persecution. People were mourning in in Paul's day and he said if you really want to love them, you need to identify with them. Um, living in harmony and humility. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So 
Paul says we should live in harmony and humility. Um, He says we should live in peace with others. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful doing what is right in the eyes of all. It is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for uh, for God's wrath. So uh, here, um, Benita brought this up last week. You know, is that saying that I need to make everybody happy? No, that's not what it's saying. What Paul is saying is, understand that the world is watching you. Understand that non-Christians are out there saying the church is a bunch of hypocrites. Understand that. And so, as you go about your daily life, live in such a way as though you are living with the reality that people are watching. That's what I think Paul has in mind when he says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of all. Understand that they are paying attention to you and what you are doing. Okay? Uh, And then the final thing that Paul says in this section, under love must be sincere, is he says, rest in God's protection. Do not take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul says that in all these areas, in all these things, this is how we show a sincere love. Rejecting evil and embracing good, honoring others, persevering, being joyful, patient, and faithful, sharing, practicing hospitality, blessing our enemies, rejoicing and mourning with others, living in harmony and humility, living in peace with others, and resting in God for protection. As you read that, what, what comes to mind to you? Okay. We would if we actually view ourselves like it says to bring that up where it talks about the choice of loving others is not a feeling, it's an action. And if we love others, then we're going to re- reject the evil in them, but we're going to love the good in them. Mm-hmm. We're going to honor other people, we're going to see their value because we're choosing to love them. Uh, we'll be joyful, patient, faithful, and share, we'll bless our enemies. Even though they do wrong things, we will choose to respond in love. Mm-hmm. Um, if we love people, we'll rejoice with them when good things happen. We won't be jealous. Mm-hmm. If they're good thing, or we don't have something good, and if somebody's mourning, we love them, we will be with them. Yep. Uh, I mean, just all, everything, all under that umbrella of choosing the action of love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does anybody hear the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount here? Think of Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. Matthews chapter 5, 6, 7, 8. And in that, Paul is reinforcing, driving home those very concepts. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, in the kingdom of this world, there is an established order. And, you know, you have the powerful at the top and the weak at the bottom. And that's the way that it's always going to be. And Jesus comes along and he puts his hands on that kingdom and says, in my kingdom, it's not going to be like this. And he turns the kingdom on its side. And he says, in my kingdom, 
All are equal. There is no greatest and least. And in that then, there is only one way to respond to everyone within the kingdom, and that is love. To understand that they have value, and that value must be understood in light of the truth and the gospel. And so, the other thing that I think Paul is saying here, and I think it's important that we understand this, this love uh, is not just a feeling. It's not just, oh, I like that person. This is something that says, because of the reality of what I understand, that God has created, and I am sinful, and because I am sinful, I need Him. And so I am dependent on Him for His righteousness, for for Him to forgive me. And because I understand that, I can look at everybody else and see them the same. doesn't matter what their sin is. It's sin. And so... I think there, you know, there is an equality here and there is the, this gospeling love is something that is reaching out, but it is reaching out because of the transformation that is happening within our own, own heart. And I think this is where, as Christians, we get ourselves into problems when we try and do this without the aid of the Holy Spirit, without His transforming work in our life. That's frustrating. You'll end up hating people. Okay. Going back to your idea that this is a reflection Mm -hmm. of Matthew. When you look at Matthew 5 to the attitude, well, the first 16 verses of chapter 5 in Matthew, it's just almost, I mean, of course it's said differently, but it's a complete repeat of the Beatitudes and then how it ends there. Chapter 5 is the end. It goes into, you're the light of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're the salt of the earth. Yep. You're the light of the world. Yep. And then, you know, Paul goes, or Paul, Jesus there goes into redefining sin in, the, in terms of murder and adultery and all of these things and, and the sincerity with which God looks at all these things. So, yep. Okay, so... That is Paul's uh, explanation of gospeling love in the world that we live. But what about as it relates to as a citizen, as a member of a country, as a... Remember, Paul didn't live in a void. He lived in the Roman Empire, although he was a Jewish citizen. He was also a, a Roman citizen. And so he was under the oppression of Rome. And... Uh, During the first century, the Roman government was incredibly vicious, uh, at times blaming Christians for things that the emperor himself was doing. And so there was a tendency within the church to say, we don't need government. Uh, We can oppose government. 
we can uh, revolt against government, even if it's you know not a political revolt, but at least a uh, uh, one of, of speaking only. And, and Paul speaks to that in chapter thirteen. He says, "Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established." The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do, not, who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of a possible punishment, but also because of conscience. So Paul lays out the case that God has instituted government, and so therefore government is the representative of God. And so therefore, we are to live in submission to that Authority. Now, just to have a little bit of fun. So, you're driving down the highway, and you see a sign that says this. Now, before we, I ask you the question... Uh, my son has his permit, and we're trying to teach him to drive, so I expect utter righteousness. <laughs> Just kidding. What does this sign mean? <laughs> it means you do not go over 55. You can it go under it, but you do not go past. It means you don't go 56? You don't go 57, 58, 59, 60? They don't give you 5, 6, 7, 8, right? It means that the speed limit is 55. How many of you have ever seen one of these signs and said, well, I think I can go just a little bit faster? Set the cruise to 58 or 59. Yeah. It's going to pull down sure. and go up the hill. <laughs> average. Paul says, submit to the governing authorities. Now, I, I share this because it's, it's, it's something that's easy. It's something that we can all have a good laugh about. But in reality, there's a lot of truth to this, isn't there? This isn't the only thing we struggle with, right? Speed limit signs, while uh, you know they may be an annoyance, especially when we're in a hurry, all those kinds of things, it is part of the uh, what God has laid out. And so, so Paul shares uh, a couple of other things. Verse 6, he says, This is also why you pay taxes for the authority are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Isn't it interesting? Here we are. We just had April 15th. If you didn't do your taxes, you're late. <laughs> so hopefully you've got your taxes done. But here Paul says, You owe taxes. Pay them. Do you know, I heard this statistic this week. Uh, that apparently there's some honest Christians that will... Or, or people that claim to be Christians that are very honest when they're taking a survey. And the question was asked, uh, how, what percentage of people who go to church on a regular basis cheat on their taxes? What do you think the number was? 
It was like a third, 30, 34%, 35%. And made no bones about it, you know. Um, now, they didn't go into detail if that was property tax or income tax or anything like that. But here Paul lays out something very specific, a way that we can demonstrate gospeling love. Why? It's my money, right? I earned it. It's, don't we do the same thing on Sundays when it comes to offering, tithing, those kinds of things? And you know, it, it is, it, and I know Satan plays with our minds, and this is one of those things that, I mean, I, I, I've always paid my taxes, mm-hmm. I have, but I, can, I will also be honest and say, I get very irritated because the money that you do pay for taxes goes to things that my core spiritual, I mean, beliefs yep. are against. Yep. And but that is where that where we have to go back to. God is God, mm-hmm. and God will take care of all of this in the end. Yep. My responsibility is to submit to what God has taught me to do. Yep. And if the governing authorities, I mean, I do what I can as a citizen by participating in voting mm-hmm. and hearing, letting my voice be heard. But if the governing authorities choose to do something with the money that I'm paying mm-hmm. in taxes that I am opposed to, I still am under the authority of God to follow the fact that this is what the government is. I'm, I am to submit to them. In the end, God will be God and God will take care of mm-hmm. yep. and make right yep. problems. Yeah. And he can unestablish any established governments, right? Yes. He has done that. Okay, so in living in submission to authority, Paul says we are to pay our taxes. He also says we are to pay revenue. Now, what would revenue be? It's kind of an oddball thing here. He says, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. Um, there was almost a dual taxation system in the Roman Empire. So you had the taxes that were due to the Roman authorities, but then you also had the tax collectors. Remember Matthew and Zacchaeus? They collected taxes, and they would they would make margin on your taxes. You know, if you owed 10%, they would collect 12% and keep 2% for themselves. Uh, and so here, I think what, uh, what Paul is saying is, uh, don't fight the system. Be honest and, and maintain your integrity within the system. And then he also says, if it's respect that is owed, then give respect. And if it's honor, then give honor. It goes the full gamut from you know your checkbook to your heart. Uh, and so Paul shares these things then. Gospeling love means a love that is sincere without hypocrisy. It proceeds from us as we are changed by by the gospel, and it means living in submission to authority. Those two things are the first two things that Paul points out. And then I think he shares one final thought, uh, and that happens in verses 8 and following. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So, uh, in this section, I think Paul is sharing for us why we share the love of God. And the reason is, this is why we were left here. It was for this very reason that to to be able to share the good news, the gospel message to others. Uh, There was a monk who shared these words with uh, some of his disciples. He said, in all ways, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. That is the epitome of what gospeling love is. When you have sacrificed for other people, And then there may come a point in time when you need to verbalize what the gospel is. And I think that is exactly what Paul is telling us, saying this is how you live in this evil and corrupt world that we are left in. This is how you overcome evil. The same way that Jesus did. You love. You give of yourself to the point of death even. And that's love. No greater love has any man than this, than he lay down his life for another. And, and I think that is in essence what Paul is sharing with them here. Uh, because there were some of these people whose lives were going to be taken from them for the sake of the gospel. We talk about it just in the sense of obedience. But I think in order to truly understand, we need to say... There were some of these individuals, Paul included, whose life was going to be taken from them simply because they believed the gospel, they taught the gospel, preached the gospel, and lived the gospel. It hasn't come to that point for you and I yet. But it may. Right? Okay. So that is, I think, in a nutshell, what this section is about. The the central truth then... When we submit fully to God's grace in our lives, He will produce a love for others and confidence in our position that will drive out the fear of making ourselves vulnerable. I am convinced that the biggest reason that most Christians don't love is they are scared to death of being vulnerable to other people. You might see that I'm not perfect, or you might see that I have issues, or you might see that I have fears, or... Problems. That vulnerability keeps us from truly loving in, the, loving in the sense that I think Paul calls us to and Jesus does. And so when we understand God's grace in our lives, it gives us the confidence. Not just, not just understanding God's grace, but understanding our position in God's grace. That we are fully loved and fully safe in Him. It allows us to be vulnerable. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, 
visit us online at ccochurch.com.